Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, this is Marion Bartoli. I'm Mats Villander. This is Mary Carrillo. I'm Stan Wawrinka. I'm Leighton Hewitt. I'm Andy Murray. This is Yannick Noah, and you're listening to The Tennis Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome once again to the Tennis Podcast and episode four of Wimbledon Relived, when we are travelling back in time to 1991 and what was, at the time, the longest ever women's final between Steffi Graf and Gabriella Sabatini, the top two seeds in the championships that year. And it it was an absolute classic and uh, one that we've all enjoyed reliving up until just a few moments ago, David, it was the very welcome return of of NBC coverage with Bud Collins. Yes, uh, and a joy as well as Dick Emberg and Tracy Austin was there, and yeah, I mean it was beautiful pictures until the ball was actually on the court and we couldn't actually see the flight of the ball particularly well because the court was so worn and um, it doesn't show up that well against it. But you got the sense of the pictures they were painting on the court. These two players, certainly Sabatini at the absolute peak of her powers. That was the the sort of year, 12 months that she played when she was at her very best. And she's so artistic as a tennis player. She has everything to compensate for her lack of brute power. And you've got Graf, who was just trying to find her best. And then at the end, she does. And it was just a wonderful contrast, a wonderful clash. Yeah, thank goodness we did have English language commentary because we, broadly speaking, couldn't see the tennis ball <laughs> for much of it. This one should be uh, Wimbledon relived, but but minus the ball, uh, which is, you know, we kind of expect that from some of the 70s and early 80s um matches we've been watching but from a 90s match we were we were hoping to be able to see the tennis ball but alas not today but um we could see the players Matt and we could see the the outline of the court and um that was was just about enough (laughs) yeah just about um no no I mean it was it's one of those matches which I've heard about and knew the score and was excited to see how Graf and Sabatini would match up on grass. And it just it just doesn't disappoint. It it really is a classic, both in terms of drama at the end of the match and sustained quality th- throughout. And just just nice players 
to watch and as you know just good people as well i think graf and sabatini and it, you just you don't really you know you don't find well i didn't find myself rooting really for either of them obviously i know the score you just but you just watch the match and it's just a pleasant very pleasant viewing experience matt wasn't uh, in existence yet i was five years old and and probably peaking david you were doing the opposite i think that's fair <laughs> i was uh I was, uh, yeah, tail spinning through A-levels to failure and uh, to having to do them all over again. Uh, and this particular Wimbledon fell halfway between the two years that I, that I completely failed all of those exams um, and was, but was discovering I, – I still was in the tennis period, watching period of my life where I could only watch Wimbledon really because nothing else was on, but I was just sort of – starting to discover the French Open because satellite dishes had enabled us to start watching that. But it wasn't until the US Open that would follow this Wimbledon that I would really become completely obsessed with the sport. But the Graf-Sabatini rivalry was one that I always got my attention. Just, I, I just think it, it's almost the perfect clash uh, of, of styles. And, particularly, and it's Sabatini, to me, that makes all of it because she doesn't have this the power that most players have and so she's finding other ways to win and she evolved her, her game and and last night I, I i watched for the first time the entire 1990 us open final between the two of them which is the only grand slam title that sabatini ever won i was just fascinated as, as to how she'd done it because although she'd got several wins against graf she'd never beaten her on the biggest stage like that and and I just loved it and watched watching how she kind of overhauled her own game in order to do so. Ah, oh, great. Yeah, one o'clock in the morning last night, David was not only watch, reliving tennis from a completely different Grand Slam to the, to the one that uh, <laughs> we're, we're supposed to be living on the podcast, but also sort of accidentally trolling Martina Navratilova's taste in cars. That was very accidental. <laughs> Uh, on Twitter. So busy busy night for David Law. Yeah, and I arranged a great interview for later today. <laughs> for tomorrow's show. So hopefully that will come off. Sleep is for the week, uh, as as far as David's concerned. Um, shall I set the scene for you in terms of 1991, aside from the demise of, of student law, which was obviously the main event of 1991. Um, other things that were happening were Everything I Do, I Do It For You by Brian Adams was at number one for 16 weeks. That's a oh, record that, was, that still stands. That was a big part of my life back then. That, that, song. that song? Yeah. Yeah, okay. I don't, don't need to hear anything more about well, that. <laughs> <laughs> you, know how, you know how we were talking about 17-year-old Boris Becker yesterday? Mm, and, and how cool he and, was. And how cool he was. And imagine... If you compared your own 17-year-old self to that, well, I was 17 in 1991. And like I say, I was <laughs> the loser of all losers. Great. Lovely mental image. Silence of the Lambs was released. Did you watch that? I did, yeah. Scared the life out of me. I think that was an 18 certificate, though. Yeah. You I really was, were was, a rebel back I then, was. David. I, I, I I'm not, I mean, I didn't see it at the cinema. I don't actually think I would have got away with it, even though I was six foot five. I don't think they would have thought I was 18. 
Um, Freddie Mercury uh, announced that he had AIDS and died the next day. Robert Maxwell was found fo- floating in the sea. Uh, these aren't. This is. Uh, I'll, I'll get all the, the 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 bad stuff out of the way. Mike Tyson charged with rape. Uh, Operation Desert Storm and the invasion of Kuwait leading up to the Gulf War. Boris Yeltsin won the first free elections in Russia. Um, the U- UK poll tax was introduced. Um, Slovenia and Croatia declare independence from Yugoslavia and the Balkan war, the Balkans war starts. And Grigor Dimitrov, Kiki Burton, Simona Halep, Johanna Konta, Ed Sheeran and Pixie Lott were all born. Did you know that in 1992, it probably would have been 1992, Andrew Castle played, I think it was the national championships with a sign leaning against his racket bag that he'd written himself that said, Say no to the poll tax. I I did know that. It's one of the yeah. sort of iconic in, images of Andrew Castle's career. I can't think of any others. Um, Hold on, he pushed Mats Verlander to five sets. Yeah, I'm just saying, I, it was before my time. But that is um, that's a that's an image that that I'm aware of because it's mm. it's endured. You aware of that, Matt? No, the only what well, you are now, now. The only Andrew Castle line that i always remember is when they when they when he was introduced as a pundit at queens and you know they have a strap line for his career and it was reached the third round at queens in 1980 something and it's like that's not that's not an achievement <laughs> to put on us on a you know to introduce someone he did better than that surely yeah yeah he did it was a top 100 player british number british one, number one. Surely you've, got to, you've got to put british number yeah. one on rather than reaching the third round of anything. Um, it was quite an interesting, before we get on to talk about this actual match and the the final, just to set the scene of that Wimbledon, Matt, it, it had a lot of intrigue going in, didn't it? Yeah, it was a really interesting Wimbledon for lots of reasons. Firstly, Andre Agassi was making his first Wimbledon appearance since the boycott. Um, he, he played in 1987 and then boycotted it for a few years because of the predominantly white clothing policy more on that more on that tomorrow when we do Andre Agassi in 1992 winning the title so so that was the one where there was the where Agassi did the unveil the stripping off of the tracksuit yes. and um yeah. and ah. uh, sports sports illustrated say that rain postponed his debut for 3 days which only heightened the silly drama of his first center court appearance and that brings me on to the weather because that was the other well one of the other big talking points from this wimbledon apparently the temperatures were the coldest in june in england for 332 years with rain hampering the schedule on all but the last 4 days and it led to the first middle Sunday in the tournament's 114-year history and, you know, just the sort of stirring atmosphere that that, that, that created for the first time. Um, but Sally Jenkins called it the greyest of Wimbledons where nothing and no one was stronger than the weather. Um, it was also the first Wimbledon since 1977 where Martina Navratilova didn't reach at least the semi-finals. She'd got there 13 years in a row, but she lost in the quarters to Capriati, who was the youngest semi-finalist at Wimbledon, aged just 15 years and 96 days. And I found this quote quite poignant and haunting in a way from Jennifer's mother, Denise, who said, um, you know, part of me doesn't want her to win the title yet. Just sort of, 
showing that she was aware of how wow. of the sort of damage that that might cause such a young player. And then the other big talking point was Monica Selesh, um, who was only 17 herself, but the but the number one player in the world. She'd taken Steffi Graf's number one ranking earlier that year. She'd won the Australian Open and the French Open, but she mysteriously withdrew 72 hours before the tournament began. This was the only Grand Slam from the 1991 Australian Open to the 1992 French Open, which Selesh didn't win. There were six slams there. She won five of them. This one she didn't because she wasn't in the draw. And, yeah, there was this press release 72 hours before and um, people weren't sure what had happened. There was speculation that she'd fallen from a bike and skinned a knee. There was speculation that she was about to undergo knee surgery. The British tabloids was, you know, speculating, saying, is Monica about to become a Wimble mum? And the reality oh, seemed to be that she was suffering shin splints uh, from overplaying. But yet there were, also, there were also conspiracy theories that she was protecting a clause in her racket sponsorship with Yonex to keep her number one ranking because she was guaranteed to finish number one if she didn't play. But if she played and lost before the quarters, she would have dropped to number two. So there was all sorts of speculation. But what it certainly did was pave the way for Steffi Graf and Sabatini because they were then the top two seeds on opposite halves of the draw and ended up meeting in the final because Graf was not having a great year. Well, relatively, she was 42 and six for the year, but relatively she wasn't having such a good year because of Selesh and also Sabatini. Yeah, they described it as a, a slump for, for Steffi Graf in, in the NBC build-up to, to to the match, to the final in 91 and and. You know, it might sound ridiculous, but relatively it was. Monica Sellers had, had got to her game and and got into her head, I think. She had held, she'd held the number one spot for 186 consecutive weeks, Steffi Graf, until Monica Sellers had taken over from her in in March. And although it wasn't Selesh that uh, Steffi Graf lost to at the French Open just a few weeks before, it was an absolutely bruising defeat to Rancho Sanchez Vicario um, in the semi-finals. Six love, six two, and that would have been. Do you remember that, David? Because Steffi Graf losing that heavily surely must have been a a pretty seismic event. Yeah, I can't say I remember the the 91 women's event. It was the, the 90s, Open that David. Well. I know, but my satellite dish hadn't really <laughs> got going yet. Um, and I was, I remember seeing the, the men's final with Courier and Agassi, but no, I, I don't have the, the most vivid memory of that particular tournament. But now that I, I've watched the, the match between Graf and Sabatini again, and also watched that one last night, the US Open, yeah, you got the sense that the, the ground was moving beneath her feet, and and here was a player, and and this is something that really gets me when I see the the figures and the ages and the, of these people. Becker uh, was playing in about his seventh Wimbledon, and and he'd won three of them, and he was only twenty three years old. And here's Graf. We're talking about her going through a slump, and she's in her early twenties still. Um, because she'd come on the scene in eighty seven, and and then won it, and then defended it, and was the dominant player for so many years. She'd already won the Golden Slam by the time she was sort of 20 years of age. So, yeah, in 91, it definitely felt like 
she was struggling. And we know that she was struggling with off-court matters as well, worries about her dad and, and just finding it difficult. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not just the the Selesh issue getting into her head, but I mean, Sabatini specifically was 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 in her head as well. I mean, she'd won six of their last eight matches, including their last five, and she'd beaten her in the 1990 US Open final, what, eight months before, nine months before. And that was the match that, that you were watching at one o'clock in the morning last night, David, whilst uh, accidentally trolling nine-time Wimbledon champion Martina Navratilova. Yeah, well, I was, I was, first of all, I was really surprised to see that stat, six out of eight wins against Graf. I didn't realise she'd had that. I thought that she'd beaten her in the US Open final and pushed her close in this one. That's what I knew of her. I wouldn't have known about any of those facts either side. But I think that tells a story because overall, the head-to-head was fairly heavily in favour of Graf over the course of their careers. But during this spell... Sabatini had overhauled her game. She'd she'd got a coach in Carlos Kermeyer who had worked with her and they decided to change what had been a very successful career for her up to a point of having lovely variety from the back of the court, great consistency, looping topspun backhands and forehands ground strokes. And they overhauled that in favor of her becoming a chip charger, somebody who comes to the net as often as she can and finishes the rallies up at the net. And I watched that US Open final because that had become a story that I'd heard so many times. And I just, I was curious to see whether that was just one of those kind of throwaway lines that, or whether it really felt like that when you watched it. And, and it, and it was, it was, it was a total difference to what. I'd seen of her before and in fact what we see of her on clay for instance and what she was doing particularly against Graf and she did the same in this 91 final is she kept on coming in chipping to the Graf backhand and Graf obviously had this wonderful sliced backhand but but it's difficult to hit a passing shot with that or a, a clean winner passing shot certainly so she was forcing her to drive it, and occasionally Graf would be successful, but it's not a shot she really wanted to hit. And Sabatini had just decided, that, well, I'm just going to play a percentage game using that. If you can pass me enough times, you'll win, but I'm coming in. And it, and it was just great to see, not only because of the approach, but because of what I think we discussed when we covered her during the Rome Relived series, where Sabatini was so dominant at that tournament and beat Selish. Sabatini's hands are so soft at the net. She has this ability to just cushion a ball and take all the pace off it and just feather it over the net and and decide what sort of volley she's going to hit. And it was just a stroke of genius, really, and a very gutsy move, I think, to change a winning game up to a point because she wasn't satisfied with being a perennial semi-finalist. Yeah, just realising Graf was her roadblock and figuring out a way to beat her dick dick emberg in the uh in the commentary box just before the 91 wimbledon final started said that the rivalry was building in a similar manner to navratilova and evert which might have been probably was a bit of hyperbole really but to think at that point if you just zone in on the rivalry in these 12 months it was really competitive obviously when you extrapolate out and look at their careers it's it's incredible to think that 21 grand slams separate them, you know, to think that because they're so evenly matched here and 
Sabatini is such a rival for Graf, and she did it, as you said, by transforming her game. Yeah, the, the more Sabatini matches that we relive, the more heartbroken I am that she she retired so young. Um, I mean, I know she'd still be retired now, whatever, but... Um, but there was more, it, I, I, there was I feel, more to come. I, I feel kind of a delayed um, sense of being denied something, deprived mm-hmm. of something that 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 we all should have got to see and enjoy. Uh, it's incredible that she only won once. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hello Tennis Podcast listeners, David here. Now you might know that I love a bit of cooking, and I think I'm quite good at it. But if I'm honest, even I get fed up trying to work out what to do every night. That's where Home Chef comes in. Being able to put together a delicious meal without the long prep and the cook times, well that's pretty cool. Home Chef provides fresh ingredients and chef-designed recipes conveniently delivered to your doorstep to simplify your cooking experience. They have over 30 options a week and serve a variety of dietary needs so you don't have to worry about what to make ahead of time. Not only is it convenient, but it's economical too. Home Chef customers save an average of $86 per month on groceries. Now, for a limited time, Home Chef is offering tennis podcast listeners 18 free meals plus free dessert for life and, of course, free shipping on your very first box. Go to homechef.com slash tennis. That's homechef.com slash tennis for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. You heard it right. Um, just to just to complete the, the backstory and the context, Matt, David alluded to to some off-court stuff that was going on for, for Steffi Graf. And she was an incredibly quiet, private person. Um, so we didn't necessarily know the ins and outs of it all, um, which I suppose w- was part of the problem. It led the, the German media to, to pry and to, to try and to try and dig for stuff and and draw their own conclusions about about what might have been going on in her mind but it was certainly a, a big topic of of speculation and and focus of media attention at the time right yeah it was a it sounds like it was a real scandal really in the in the german tabloids her steffi graf's father peter um was alleged to have well to be having affairs and um was kind of just 
persecuted by the German tabloids for it, and they wouldn't and they wouldn't get off Steffi Graf's case about it for months and months leading up to this Wimbledon. Um, apparently, a German newspaper reported that a blood test proved Peter Graf was not the father of a Playboy model's child just before Wimbledon, and that did help to squash the story a little bit. But, you know, for someone like Steffi Graf, who didn't like attention, she was definitely not going to like this sort of attention, which was, you know, just these just these rumours and accusations and, you know, she obviously loved her father and and his behavior getting in the way of her career was not what she needed not what he wanted either just a just a very messy situation and one that certainly coincided with a with a downturn in results for Steffi Graf in terms of german media interest in tennis i mean june 1990 june 1991 must have been the all-time peak because three of the four uh, wimbledon finalists were german yeah, you got Michael Stick beating Boris Becker in the men's final would come the next day. Becker had obviously been around as we talked about him yesterday as a 17-year-old winning in 85, so he'd been around for 6 years at the top of his game. He'd won 3 Wimbledon titles during that spell. He'd won the US Open. He he went on to be world number 1 and there was so much to get the teeth into from a German media perspective with him, not only his sex success, but also his own behavior off court. And yeah, I mean, tennis was the biggest sport in the country around at that time in Germany. And Graf and Becker and far behind Michael Stick were the reasons for that. I mean, Michael was <laughs> was really an afterthought. He Nobody thought <laughs> he was going to come along and, and beat Boris Becker. So that created a, a narrative of its own and, and they were put up against each other as as rivals and, and very different people as well. But yeah, I mean, throughout that period, it was just front page news, not just back page sport news. So the road to the final for Gabriella Sabatini and, uh, and Steffi Graf, the second and, and top seeds respectively, neither drop a set um, en route to that final and nobody took more than four games from Steffi Graf. So as much as the talk going in is that she's been toppled from number one and she's got all these problems going on in her private life, she's she, she throughout the tournament she's looked imperious and, and back to her 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 Wimbledon and and Grand Slam winning best. Yeah, yeah. Certainly, in terms of road in, um, what I think we also see is the contrast in her response to Sabatini's play in this final versus what we saw in the U.S. Open final that I watched last night from from eight nine months earlier. Because whereas Sabatini kind of did the same things and is being kind of slightly trolled by Mary in commentary for hitting a 49 mile an hour serve at one point and another at 52 miles an hour, which are service speeds I've never heard of from a player before. I've never heard of a player hitting one that slow. Yeah, when, when you when you talked about her feather light touch at the net, <laughs> I almost uh, very rudely said she, she had a feather light touch on serve as well. <laughs> well no, there you, you go, have. I've said it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and what you saw was her. she was able to win even in spite of that, even in spite of the nerves getting into her game and causing her to serve that slowly. 
she was still good enough to win and Graf just didn't have it at the US Open. She was full of doubt. She was missing a lot of forehands. It was the confidence and the security in in knowing that if she got a forehand, she was going to nail it or not. And in the US Open, she she just wasn't doing that. Now here at this Wimbledon, once it's leveled up at one set all, Sabatini is starting to take over in that match. She is the one who's getting the chances. She is playing the most beautiful tennis. But you also notice towards the end how Graf suddenly steals herself and decides she's going to get anything she gets on the forehand, she's just going to knock the living daylights out of. And she and her footwork is so good, she's so quick, that she's able to get around that backhand and, and hammer the forehand. And her, I feel like her champion mentality came out in this 91 match because whilst she was playing well, Sabatini was playing at the top of her game. And it's it's hard to know where you pinpoint somebody kind of losing their opportunity for themselves, i.e. choking, and when somebody takes it from them. And there are a couple of rallies where you feel like Sabatini, she had a, a point to, to set up a championship point uh, and at six, at uh, seven, at six, five, six, I think five it was. In, six, five, in the all. Mm. Yeah. And, and she, she sets up the point perfectly. She gets Graf out of court. She hits a volley into the corner. She has another put away volley to some degree against most players. And normally that feather like touch would be enough to just keep it out of the clutches of her opponent. But she's a little heavy handed by her standards and puts it at least into the court most players wouldn't have got near it. Graf did. And her athleticism added to her, just as I say, her champion mentality. She brought another level in order to take that away from Sabatini, I thought. Sabatini said afterwards, after that game, I kept thinking about that point. I just put it right in the middle, an easy ball for her. Mm. That was bad luck. And yeah, I mean, she didn't win... So Graf broke back with a stinging forehand return up the line and um, Sabatini didn't win another game from there. I know all the talk for throughout her career and forevermore will be of Steffi Graf's forehand, Fraulein forehand, absolutely magnificent shot. There is no questioning that. But that's not her greatest weapon. Her greatest weapon is her extraordinary footwork. Anyone can hit a really great forehand if they're in the right position. It's it's rarely about the actual stroke play. It, it's about positioning. And she is always seemingly in the perfect position to rip a forehand. And that is because of her simply balletic footwork dancing around that forehand. I mean, I, I can barely remember her hitting a backhand. She's just completely content to, to camp out camp out in that that backhand corner and hit forehands because she trusts in her footwork and and rightly so because it is an absolute marvel it is mesmerizing to watch i always think the hallmark of all great sports people is kind of having a trademark and you and you know exactly what what they're going to do and you've seen it over and over again but there's seemingly nothing that opponents can do to prevent it and part of you thinks oh why don't they stop her doing that well because the answer is you can't stop her doing it because her footwork is so precise so 
dazzling to little little steps around the ball to get in position and then she can take the forehand either way mainly inside out and it sort of stays low and just shoots through the court especially on the grass and just time and time again again Steffi Graf does it and it is I mean it's just such a good shot especially when you contrast it with her backhand which is heavily sliced she's got that she's got those two um different shots that it just it just becomes a perfect combination one is stinging one is kind of setting the point up and when it all comes together it's it's such a complete package that grass incidentally was in a really bad way by finals weekend of this tournament wasn't it presumably because they'd had to play on middle sunday for the first time of course one of the reasons that wimbledon has that middle sunday is to give the grass a day to breathe and there was a a patch in the middle of the court between the the baseline and the service line on both sides that was that was basically a sort of dry mud pit and both of them I thought were were aiming for that patch of the court because it gave off such erratic bounces it really was a a thrill ride of a tennis court yeah it's like it's like Shane Warne aiming (laughs) for the bit of the rough exactly to get the ball spinning by the batsman's feet yeah and I mean, to be fair, Sabatini, I've described their graph having that game game plan that you can't really thwart. Obviously, Sabatini was doing her absolute best to thwart it and had come up with a tactic that when it worked, worked well because she was sometimes managing to pin graph in that backhand corner. But just time and again, graph managed to get around it and hit and hit the forehand when most people would would be stuck hitting a backhand. Shows the value, by the way, of NBC having had their own camera in the commentary box because at the start of the match, they zoomed in on that rough patch of the pit yeah. of the court and Bud Cullen said, I think Sabatini needs to aim for that. <laughs> and uh, it was, and you got this close-up of seeing how rough this ground was. It looked like someone had sort of ridden a combine harvester over it, didn't it? It really <laughs> did look dodgy. Some of the, some of the lines in the commentary are... Are wonderful. I mean, look, some of them haven't aged brilliantly, and, and I wouldn't be comfortable with hearing them now. I don't love hearing Gabbett, Gabriella Sabatini described as the divine Argentine, as much as that is truly excellent rhyming. <laughs> um, but I mean, as a sort of oblique, gentle-ish reference to <laughs> to the troubles that 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 Steffi Graf was having with the coverage of her personal life and her dad's personal life. There's a there's a cutaway to the, well, I was going to say the Graf player box, but actually, of course, it's a shared player box, which is extraordinary that that uh, in those days the, um, the the teams had to sit um, uh, on on rows next to one another. Um, there's a cutaway to, to Steffi Graf's dad and they go, oh, that's... Uh, that's uh, Steffi's dad, Peter. Um, he's uh, he's had his fair share of scandals recently. He's uh, he's a used car salesman, or formerly a used car salesman. And there's a pause, and uh, he goes, "Would you buy a car from that man?" <laughs> and then the tennis <laughs> resumes, and the commentary <laughs> resumes as normal. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's. I don't know whether you get away with that now, but it's it's kind, it's kind of amazing. It would be up in it would be up on in lights. Put it that way on Twitter within seconds, uh, and everybody would be weighing in. Um, 
a, a line also, by the way, from the US Open commentary last night that ha- that had me laughing out loud was a lot of chat about on our show in Rome about the Sabatini drop shot and how how deftly she would strike that shot and how many winners she would hit off it as well and she hit a, a couple of beauties in this uh, in this US Open match and then she went for one and it just clipped the top of the net and came back her own side and and Dick Dick Emberg said uh, yep she's uh, she's maybe going to the well a little bit too often with that uh, that drop shot she likes playing it doesn't she and Mary goes well when you have a toy like that you want you want to play with it <laughs> that's brilliant there are also the um the in the lead in to the ad breaks which mercifully are, are cut out from uh, from the uh, from the videos we're watching but um they have all of their their sponsor segments it's a it's a this wimbledon broadcast is brought to you by and then there's a list of about 19 different sponsors and they have to it's 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 a readout and they have to read out the uh, the taglines um and some of them are amazing. It's brought to you by Ford. Have you driven a Ford recently? Um, and then, and then, and then uh, they go. Um, oh, and and Nike would like to remind you just do it. <laughs> Nike would like to remind you to just do it politely. <laughs> Thanks, Nike. Will do. Um, and there's so many like just little bits of little asides like that to to the coverage and to the moment and the occasion that just make it memorable princess di was there in the front row of the royal box sat alongside um future heir to the throne or current heir to the throne or second in line um prince william who was what would he have been six seven years old something like that at the time maybe a bit older um wearing dark shades throughout like a rock star um and uh, yeah, Princess Di at the end, she looked quite emotional, didn't she? Mm. Watching on uh, throughout the trophy ceremony as the du- Duchess of Kent um, hands over the Venus rosewater dish. And Gabriella Sabatini is such a magnanimous runner-up, isn't she? I mean, I'm not sure what was said between her and the Duchess of Kent. There was quite an, an extended little, little chat between them. Um, but she's just so gracious. Yeah, she has this look about her as though she's just – I don't know Gabriella Sabatini at all. I've never met her before, but she just looks like a good egg. You know, we, whenever you hear anybody talk about it, she just looks like one of those people who is going to try to win. She's going to try everything she's got. But if she doesn't, okay. You know, fair enough. You beat me. I lost. Fair enough. Let's let's get on with it. Let's move on. Um, and it's um, it's a lovely – demeanor she has out on the court and her father's there in the in the players box giving such good face and reactions throughout the match and and all the while that we're watching i'm thinking oh my god i'm so dreading his reaction when he goes on to lose because you know how i can't bear it when people lose in front of their parents and i could i could tell that he was the sort of uh, the sort of man that would I- elicit um elicit those feelings from me um but it took my breath away really he just looked proud as punch he looked he looked as proud as if she'd won it when she went up to collect her her little runners up token he was beaming with pride and applauding as if she'd won the title and and that was just wonderful and especially when you consider how 
how excruciating that was as a loss. Into you know, Sabatini served for it twice, was two points away once. You know, he was he had every reason to be just you know just pain etched all over his face, but he he just turned it to pride and um, yeah, he was. I can re- I can relate to that as a, just just with my own daughter when she enters her she likes entering writing competitions and i i never i never care whether she wins as long as she's just done her best and uh and that's and then when she does win it's amazing but and i'm chuffed to bits for her but as in terms of just having pride it's yeah give everything you got have a go sure but most most parents of of losing players i'm not saying there's not pride there but you can see the disappointment in that it's it's, it's mm. you can usually see the jumble of emotions etched etched on their faces and etched in their their reactions and body language and it seemed to be nothing but pride from him it didn't seem yeah. to be a a, comprom- a pride compromised by by disappointment um it was just pure joy and pride and and that was that was absolutely wonderful, and 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 as we've come become accustomed to with some of these broadcasts, there's the there's the line from the commentator saying, "Well, I'm sure Sabatini will be back and will win, win a Wimbledon one day," and it feels it feels almost tragic that we know that 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 didn't happen. I mean, how was that? How did that game not win her a Wimbledon? I mean, I know part of the answer is that she. She retired so young. Who knows what could have happened if she had she had wanted to continue? But but how did that style of play not earn a Wimbledon title? Well, to think that that was her final Grand Slam final, her last one, is quite jarring because she looks like she's on the cusp. I mean, she's already won a Grand Slam uh, nine months earlier, Grand Slam title, but she looks like she's on the cusp of her best of the best of her career, and in truth didn't really happen for her after that. I mean, she she had other results. I, I was telling you before we came on air how she reached, I think, the semifinals and played Graf again the year later. And I was so excited for that match, having seen this one. It didn't live up to it. She wasn't able to push Graf in the same way. I think Graf was even better. But then Sabatini really struggled then after that. She had a couple of years where she i think she went more than 30 tournaments in a row without winning um and then she'd had that awful defeat uh, against Mary Jo Fernandez when she was so heavily in front and yeah it was it was really tough for her i think not so for Steffi Graf um th- this Wimbledon win felt felt crucial for her because of what went went before it in terms of her in inverted commas slump um, she obviously she went on to win seven Wimbledon's total. This was her third. So there were four more after that, including the two consecutive ones after this in ninety two and ninety three. She won her last one in ninety six, um, and she said after after winning that title, "I needed this. I needed it for myself," and that was evident in her reaction, wasn't it? The the instinctive relief of that that body language she you could feel her let tense up and then let the tension out of her body in that winning moment and there's a little scream i think as well when she wins it and that that pose of her holding her arms above her head and her slightly arched back was was thrust onto the cover of sports illustrated after wimbledon with the with the headline i'm back and um as it turned out she wasn't 
completely <laughs> back because Selesh would go on to would go on to dominate for for a little while longer before obviously she was stabbed but a very important victory for Graf in her career for sure and one that uh, both Chris Clary uh, of the New York Times and uh, and Mary Carrillo of 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 well of this parish but obviously many other parishes as well they were both there to cover so let's hear from first of all Chris Clary talking about Gabriella Sabatini. To me, she should be more than a one-time Grand Slam champion, you know, just based on the role she played in the game, the talent that she had. But mentally, she wasn't uh, as strong as she was, I think, in terms of technique and physicality and everything else on the court. But she was a charismatic player to watch. I remember watching the the Graf um, Sabatini matches and before I was covering the sport regularly, and I was – Jumped out of the television at you, but that match in particular, yeah, I mean, I mean, she's been giving a lot of interviews for her 50th birthday. Big story in Argentina because she was such an icon there still, um, and that match comes up, you know, still does. That's the thing about tennis players when you have a match like that, it's going to keep coming up through the years as you commemorate. So you have to learn to come to grips with it, you know, a bit like Roddick and the Wimbledon final against Federer. That was another matchup I really enjoyed. I, I liked Gabby so much. I like Graf so much. But, you know, and they were both pretty quiet. I mean, I don't, I don't know that Groff was shy, but she was very private by nature. Gabby, I think, was genuinely pretty shy. Not awkward shy the way Osaka can be. Just kind of, you know, just pretty quiet and pretty uh, Gabriella was. She should have won, I think, more than just that one 1990 major at the U.S. Open when she really forced herself to, to be aggressive uh, and play the net, which is where she wanted to be. Anyway, um, but I don't think that uh, I think there was great respect between Groff and Sabatini. I, I really think that they like each other. I think they won a Wimbledon doubles title together, didn't they? Um, Groff's game was bigger. Uh, Groff's serve was a lot better. Um, and Groff, I think, had more ambition in the end than than Sabatini. So, you know, Groff liked those big moments. There's and, and Sabatini could handle power, um, but handling power isn't the same as handling pressure. Um, and I think Groff was one of those great champions who liked handling both. Um, and I think that's probably the single biggest difference in their careers. You could tell when Gabby was starting to feel the moment and tense up. It usually showed up in her serve. Um, Groff, Groff loved that moment, you know? Because Sabatini was was two points away from from winning that Wimbledon, and 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 looking back at a few of her her results, I mean, it feels harsh to mention it, but she famously was six one five one against Mary Jo Fernandez before before losing at Roland Garros. There were there were a few of those that obviously yes. piled up over the the course of her career. Did did she have a reputation for for that? Well, I, I, I was, I call that, we went to that match. I was, uh, this was in my early days of ESPN International. And I was, I was waiting in a booth. That match was starting to heat up. And I was waiting in a booth with a, like a guy who called college football. <laughs> this guy really, he really, he wasn't like the ideal guy to have in the booth because when they would come back, it was getting closer and closer. And I remember afterwards, Mary Joe Fernandez, saying, I just wanted to get the match to one hour. I was getting blown out so badly by Sabatini. I just wanted, she was watching the clock 
to make sure she could at least get to an hour. <laughs> That's what she was concerned or concerning herself with. But anyway, this college football guy, uh, every now, I, I kept begging the truck, the production truck, come back out. This is getting close because they had blown off the match. They didn't think it was worth covering. I said, you got to trust me. This thing is getting tight. Sabatini's getting tight. You know, <laughs> they finally came to us and this foot, college football guy said, well, it's a beautiful day here in gay Paris. And they're like, buddy, it's the fourth deuce. You've got to like get us into this. He was giving this ridiculously long introduction and he didn't really know the players. And I just started like barking over him, you know, like, oh, here she was up this and that. She was up there. There's already been like, anyway, um, I don't know that Gabby had. Uh, uh, like a reputation that she had to carry around her neck as being a, a choker. I just think that in the end, a lot of players got the better of her because they played, they, you know, you're judged by, you're judged at the finish line. And that's especially true of this pandemic. Um, like, why don't we all just wait and see what happens here, kids? But, um, no, I think, I think Gabby, again, um, I think if there's the Achilles heel, the thing that won her, helped her win, her major was her serve, and it became her her biggest Achilles heel. Her second serve, I think there was a, a match I called where she was really just bending in these second serves, and I so and I was annoying. I mean, I'm still annoying, but back in the day, I really said what I what I wanted, and I said that this this thing this we have an expression in the U.S. I don't know if you have it that if something comes in softly, it's a duck, right? Mm-hmm. So she was hitting these duck serves, and at one point she hit one that I swear to God barely made it over the net. I said, "Okay, that thing quacked," you know. So that was kind of <laughs> she had a quacky second serve at times, and that really cost her because people sometimes you don't you can't always tell when someone is getting tight where it's going to show up. But with Gabby, it was her serve. But boy, oh boy, was she a beautiful, beautiful player, beautiful woman. I mean, universally admired in the. Uh, I think in both locker rooms, but all the women really, really liked her. She was very humble, very beautiful. So Mary Carrillo, they're thinking that her her serve was was what what held her back um, and what potentially prevented her from from winning more. And and Chris Clary thinking it was was the mental side of the game. Chris saying that that he thought Graf had more ambition than Sabatini. And maybe Graf had more ambition than everybody. But but I suppose possibly the, the truth is that both of those things are are right. There, there were those two weaknesses to her game and those those multiple Grand Slam champions at the time didn't didn't have those. But possibly I know that sounds like a harsh assessment, but you know, there there has to be a reason why she only she only won one. Um and um, it certainly wasn't anything to do with the quality of her, of her forehands or backhands or, or volley. It adds up to me, uh, if we think back to what Kevin Curran was telling us yesterday of, of being a very good player who reached a final, but if he had had all the fuss, all the attention that Boris Becker had had, particularly at a young age, he, he, it wouldn't have been for him. He, you get the sense he would almost prefer not to win and have all of that and Sabatini whilst she had an enormous amount of attention around her I I got the sense she was a little more content with her life and her career than other players who needed to win in order to be happy would have would have been um so 
it, yeah, it it all adds up to me. It it all goes with what I think because I I think the the serve at that level was so attackable. It it didn't give her any cheap easy points because she had a couple of crossroads in her career where a big serve just to win a few easy points probably would have won her some absolutely gargantuan matches. This being the biggest of them all. And and of course it got it got weaker in the stressful moments, which is not only a huge tell for your for your opponent that you're you're feeling it, but also that that's when you want your serve to help you out the most, right? You just when you when you're tense and your 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 arm feels like lead, you just you just want a cheap, easy point and and she never had those to rely on. Um but goodness me, she was she was uh she was a joyful tennis player to watch. Absolutely joyful. Made me watching it made me wish that there had been a, a women's champion tour, champions tour because she'd have been just glorious on that, wouldn't she? She'd have been such a crowd pleaser. Alas. No question about it. And actually, the, the the other thing that always strikes me is the speed with which she went from being here at the pinnacle of her powers, the the at the top of the game, challenging for Grand Slam trophies, to not being a force anymore at all. I mean, she retired five years later. She's still in her mid-twenties. And there's an, there was an article in the New York Times by Robin Finn talking about that 6-1, 5-1 lead against Mary Jo Fernandez that she had in the quarterfinals of the French Open. And she says it was a match that ended in tears and twilight all around and Sabatini lost touch with that commodity most precious to any athlete, her self-assurance. The one match that took my confidence away was the loss to Mary Jo. First, you can't believe it's happened to you. Then you stop believing in you. It's been a long time since I've been able to sleep a really deep sleep. A loss like that doesn't leave you. No one oh, now no one except perhaps for the player herself is afraid of Gabriella Sabatini. That's what happens when you're not winning matches. You just don't have it anymore and they know it. Well that was absolutely harrowing. Thanks, David. Gotta give it to you straight, Catherine. <laughs> Those are incredible quotes. Incredible self reflection and yeah, how 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 long after the event did were, were, were those quotes? How long after that loss? How soon after that loss? Well, that was that was in 1994. Um, so she'd had she was she was back at the U.S. Open, back at the scene of her triumph four years before. She'd had that U.S. Open match um, in uh, well, I can't exactly remember how much earlier, but you know she was and she was on the downward spiraled and she never regained it she never managed to get back to where she was um she had a a lot of injury problems as well and eventually i just think she was a really well-rounded human being it seemed to me when she went into retirement and and it seems like from the outside as though she's having and had a very happy retirement um but those two things don't necessarily go hand in hand with being the best tennis player in the world do they you know uh, we'll, we'll hear from Paul Anacone in a, in a few days' time talking about Pete Sampras and what made him. And it needed to be success. Success was what would give him happiness. And, and that's the same with a lot of these great champions. Yeah, always makes me think of the the question that Mary Carrillo put to Simona Hallett at, uh, at the French Open last year in, the, in her pre-tournament press conference. She said, oh, do you think possibly you're too happy coming into this slam? I mean, maybe... 
maybe a better word for it would be content. I don't know. Too too much of a feeling of fulfillment. Do you have to feel like there's something missing in your life in order to be hungry enough to to go to the lengths required to to strive for it? I don't know. Um, I'd like to think that not all great champions have been been deeply unhappy. <laughs> well, that's why Federer's so interesting, isn't it? Yeah, uh, you know that he's the total antidote to that. Somebody who's who loves the life and has managed to win as well. Something else I think that's interesting here is that that's two Grand Slams we've covered in a row now, um, in terms of Roland Garros and Wimbledon, where we've focused on a Steffi Graf winning. And we've actually ended up talking a little bit more about her opponent. You know, in in the French Open, that was obviously because of Martina Hingis's antics, for the want of a better word. And here it's because we're all so sort of enthralled by Gabriella Sabatini's game and personality. But maybe that says something a little bit about Steffi Graf as well. I think we can all appreciate her greatness and we all like watching her play but perhaps perhaps she as much as she's got these incredible records perhaps she's a little bit underrated because she talked herself down a a little bit as well I don't think she was concerned with greatness or she didn't want to be a judge of her own place in tennis history it strikes me in the way that some of the other players who've got similar amounts of slams have she's um she just sort of played and won and got on with it and didn't didn't necessarily like everything else that came that came with that, and she's obviously retreated from the sport since, which is a massive reason I think why. And having Serena having overtaken her record, all, all these reasons why we talk about Steffi Graf probably less than we should. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that's true, and, and we got a f- bit of flack for it at the time with with the with the French Open pods, and I I I understand why, and I I do think part of it is with 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 these with these pods we're trying to bring to life the records and the facts and and put meat on the bones and we can do that in terms of of you know reading quotes from articles and talking about our impressions of her game and and you know I've I could wax lyrical about her footwork all all day long and her really excellent ponytail um but there is still a lack of meat to put on the bones with with Steffi Graf, we 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 didn't get to know her at the time, and we haven't got to know her since, and that is absolutely her right. I I I, I respect that. I can relate to it, but it it does make it more more difficult for us, doesn't it? Usually, with those players that have been extremely private during their career, we, you, you do gradually see a, a loosening loosening up and and a, and a and an and an increasing openness and laid laid backness to towards self-reflection and, and public self-reflection. But but there hasn't been any of that with, with Steffi Graf, which does make our our job with of of reliving her greatness and, and putting context to it and, and and bringing it to life, it makes it harder, I think. Mm. Yeah, well, when you consider that Roger Federer, sorry, Pete Sampras won seven Wimbledons and we, we're not covering one of his Wimbledon triumphs um it's but we will we will get to them in the course of the the show that we do when he's beaten by roger federer we will cover it it's just that well i mean for a start there are so many stories out there but it's funny how certain individual years feel 
bigger, even just in isolation, than somebody's mm. seven-year run, and uh, or, or or easier to to do a show about like this. But well, I'd like to feel that we're paying tribute to all of them. Nineteen ninety-two is where we're going tomorrow, David. Oh, now had, we're talking. Had you pulled yourself <laughs> up by your bootstraps by then? No, I mean not 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 education-wise. However, I had completely planted the seeds of what would be my future career, and I would like to sort of think of it as sacrificing my education in order to invest in my tennis uh, knowledge. <laughs> that, that's how I justified it. Like to my all the parents. greats did, <laughs> because I tell you, there is not a moment of the Wimbledon Championships in 1992 on BBC television that I did not watch. Yeah, when when youngsters, um, when young sort of journalism students or just sports enthusiasts write to David Law and say, oh, how how did you do it? What advice have you got for me? Yeah, David replies, just uh, fail all your A-levels. Don't pay any attention in school and it'll all work out fine. You'll, you'll, have, you'll have your own podcast in, in 20 years. You'll be working for the BBC. Um, so that's 1992 tomorrow. Inadvertently insulting Martin and Everett over. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't believe that when I saw it. Me if neither. anybody hasn't seen this, uh, basically Martina posted a picture of a skyline, a I think a Floridian skyline, and she said, odd colours uh, tonight. And in the picture was uh, also a picture of a car with some uh, multicoloured paint splodges on it and i said also odd colors on that car turns out it was her car (laughs) (laughs) sorry martina looks lovely i mean it was (laughs) so obviously her car well i didn't know that did i what what do i know about cars well you know enough about the world and life to to not be tweeting martina rattle over in the middle of the night i do now So, so 1992 tomorrow, if David doesn't, you know, get us taken off air or something between now and then. Um, and yeah, we'll be back tomorrow. That's another one done. Four down, 10 more to go. No middle Sunday for us here on Wimbledon Relived. Uh, Gerald remains our mascot if he's not moved on to bigger and bigger and better things via becoming uh, an Instagram influencer. Uh, David wants me to mention Reddit, our online community. Uh, stuff's happening on there. Not exactly sure what. Have you been keeping an eye out, Matt? No, his face says no. <laughs> well, yes, I I check it every day. I don't actually have a Reddit account, but I'm very much a, a lurker on there. And um, Ian does a great job of posting posting links to the shows and getting getting some discussion going. He does, and the link is in our show notes. So head there if you want to get involved in some uh, some community chat on our Reddit page um, about Graf Sabatini, about anything you like. Uh, and tomorrow it'll be Andre Agassi against Goran Ivanisevic in the 1992 men's final. And we'll see you then. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all 
Chanel body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.